was 1998 and I was at Vanguard University. I was a biblical studies major and I didn't have a huge scholarship and I'm not independently wealthy. And so I saw in the course catalog that in order to get my degree, I needed to take this, this one class, but, but I knew I could take this class at the local junior college. And I'm not a math major, but I knew that that $12 a unit was at the junior college was far different than $1,500 a unit at Vanguard. So I thought, well, okay, let's go do that there. And so the, the, down, the, the downside to that was that my teacher was a Methodist minister and he um, spent most of the class for 15 weeks undermining the Bible. So like a good student, I spent most of my time undermining him. And so that didn't make me his favorite student. It didn't make me the favorite student in the class with the other students either. But there was a guy in that class that I went to high school with and his name was Skylar. And Skylar didn't know this new John because God saved me between graduating from high school and starting college in the August of that summer. And so he didn't know this new John. And so he's seeing me act in a way that he never saw me act in, uh, in, in, in California, in, in high school. So he's like, so he pulls me aside one day and he says, John, I, I just got to ask you why, how, how, why do you trust the Bible? Why do you, why do you put so much stock in that book? And so I wonder if, if the Skylers in your life came to you and asked you that question, what would you say? How would you respond to that question? Why do you trust the Bible? I'm afraid that many Christians are going to answer that question the same way many people in other religions would, would answer the question, why do you trust your religion? They would say things like, well, I believe it because I believe it because I believe it. Or they would say, the, the Christians would say, well, the Bible speaks to me and it moves me and it inspires me. Or they would say something like, I just kind of always have trusted the Bible. This is what I grew up in. And so I just kind of always believe the Bible. So you see how that's like, that's how a Mormon would answer the question. How, why do you trust the book of Mormon? That's why a Muslim, that's how a Muslim would answer the question. Why do you trust the Quran? So can you show someone that trusting the Bible is not a leap of faith, but it is a solid conclusion based on sound reasons for believing it? Can you show a skeptic? You know, all of us have skeptics in our lives, maybe in your family or at your workplace or maybe at school who, who want to make you look foolish for trusting the Bible. Could you, could you answer their question and show like, like it's not foolish to trust the Bible or in times of doubt and despair in times when things are very difficult? How will you answer that inner lawyer, that inner skeptic that's trying to produce arguments like you can't really trust this. Is this really true? Like, how would you counsel yourself? What would you say to yourself? What would be part of the, the ways that you would talk to yourself in those moments? But hopefully this might be one of the things that you would say to yourself. Because if, if you can't answer that question, if you're a skeptic today who's going like, yeah, well, yeah, challenge me right now, pastor. Well, I'm glad you're here. Because, or if you're just saying like, I want more, more ammo for my apologetic interactions. Like that, that's what we're going to, that's why I'm glad you're here. So now my, a couple warnings for you. The first is I've been known to talk pretty fast. And so I had somebody stop me after the eight o'clock service and they're like, Hey, Hey, you should talk a little faster. That was their sarcastic way of saying, slow down. Um, so I just want you to know this is live on Facebook. So you can go to our Facebook page. This will be on our YouTube page in the coming days. And it'll be on our, fa on our, our website in, the in a couple days. Because I'm going to give you a mountain of, there's like 89 slides up here. So I'm going to give you a mountain of information. So I don't want you to think right now, you've got to get every single thing. I want, you to, I want you to experience the weight of evidence to show you that it is not foolish to trust the Bible at all. Now, my goal today is two parts. I want to show you why you should trust the Bible. That's that's point number one. That's goal number one. But goal number two is I want you to e be able to easily explain why you trust the Bible to someone else. Okay. And the way to help you do that, I've created this acrostic called Jesus camp. And so if you're taking notes, you can see some blanks there. You can write that on your notes right now, Jesus, and then C-A-M-P down those last four points. Hopefully you can remember why you should trust the Bible and this is silly, but I don't know about you, but I would never go camping with someone I don't trust. Okay. So there is a relationship between trusting and camping. Okay. So there is a relationship between why you should trust the Bible and Jesus camp. Okay. So if you were here for our conference on Mormonism, this is about 95% of a repeat. The elders came to me afterwards and were like, you need to give this to our whole church. And so if you're like, oh, I already heard this. Well, you've heard 95% of it. But number two, you can blame it on the other elders. That's why we're doing this today, okay? 
So now the big idea that I want you to take home, why should you trust the Bible? You should trust the Bible because the Bible is the word of God. Meaning, though human authors wrote each of the 66 books of the Bible with their own vocabulary, their own style, the ultimate source of the Bible is God. And that's what we just saw, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. All of scripture, every text, every chapter, every book, every word is holy. It's sacred. It's special. It says holy Bible on the front of your Bible because this book, uh, separated from every other book, is the word of God. It's exhaled by God. So just like when we speak, like right now, as I'm speaking, I'm exhaling. And every couple seconds I have to in, I have to take more air in and then exhale as I talk. That's the, the metaphor that Paul is using by saying all scriptures God breathe. That, that the source of scripture is God. Just like we breathe out words that come from us. So the scriptures are God's breath coming out of him. So the source of scripture is God. Now, I know the obvious question at this point is what? Well, how do you know the Bible's the word of God? How do you know it came from him as the ultimate source? Well, I'm going to give you five proofs for why why the Bible in your hands is in fact the word of God. Five reasons why you should trust the Bible. Five easy to remember answers to the question, why should I trust the Bible? Knowing that for everybody here, let me rephrase that. For many of you here, you already trust the Bible without this. And it's because God's spirit is living in you. So today, it's going to be confirmation of what you already believe. But for some of you, this is going to challenge you a little bit and go, wait a minute, maybe, maybe, maybe I should trust the scripture. So the first reason you should trust the Bible is this, Jesus' high view of the Bible. We, we exalt Jesus, we're like, he's great, he's, he, he's a great, I mean, even if we're like, he's not the son of God and savior and all of that, but he's a great teacher. Well, what did he teach about the Bible? What did he say about the Bible? Well, there are some things that, that are implied in what he says that show you he saw the Old Testament as historically accurate, like this mountain of stuff. Adam and Eve lived, so did their son Abel. Noah lived, and the flood happened. Abraham lived, circumcision was commanded through him. Sodom and Gomorrah were real cities and were really destroyed. Isaac and Jacob each existed. Lot and his wife both existed. She was judged. Moses lived, was the lawgiver. Manna came from heaven and fed people. Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness. David was a real person and he wrote Psalms. Solomon was a real person, had great wealth. Elijah and Elijah both lived. Isaiah and Daniel both lived. We saw last week, Jesus said Jonah lived and really spent three days and three nights in a fish and really went and preached in Nineveh and there was revival. These are all things that Jesus assumed to be true, assumed, we're, we're assuming the Old Testament is historically accurate. Okay? But then there are statements that explicitly say to us, this is what Jesus taught about the Bible, like Matthew 4.4. 4. He's talking to Satan and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that what? Comes from the mouth of God. There's that idea of 2 Timothy 3, 16 in the words of Jesus. The words of scripture come from God as the source. Here's another passage. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now that didn't feel good to guys who were experts in the Bible. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by what? And then he doesn't appeal to some like quiver in the liver. What he does is he goes to Exodus 3, 6 and says, this is God's speech in the Bible. God said that. So from these verses, it's pretty clear what Jesus taught about the Bible. This is his, so now, now listen to some smart guys that kind of summarize Jesus' high view of the Bible by saying this. Whenever Christ and the apostles quote scripture, they think of it as the living voice of God and therefore divinely authoritative. Meaning what the scripture says, God says. So when the scripture says, don't do something, that's God saying, don't do it. When the scripture says, believe this, that's God saying, believe it. When the scripture says, do this, that's God saying, do it. So that to reject the Bible is to reject God, to believe the Bible is to believe God, to turn from the scriptures is to turn from God because the Bible is God's word. According to Jesus, that's what he taught. Here's another smart guy, put it this way. Jesus held the Old Testament to be historically true, completely authoritative and divinely inspired to him. What scripture said, God said. So if you want to summarize Jesus' high view of the Bible, I can't think of a better way to do it than those, than, than those last, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. That is Jesus' view of the Bible. What scripture says, God says. Now what's the point of that? 
Ultimately, why do I think the Bible is true and should be justed, trusted? Because Jesus said so. He, uh, he put it this way, speaking to God, he said, John 17, 17, your word is truth. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, but rejects the idea that the Bible is true and can be trusted, they've painted themselves into a very precarious corner. <laughs> right? Because either Jesus is right about the Bible being true, which means they're wrong, or they're right about the Bible being false and Jesus is wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read the New Testament enough to know that I don't want to be on the other side of an argument from Jesus, right? That typically didn't go well for people who disagreed with Jesus, okay? So one, a couple of other smart guys put it this way. If everything Jesus taught is true, he's a great teacher. We, we honor Jesus as a great teacher. If everything Jesus said is true and Jesus taught that the Bible is God's word, then it follows that it is true that the Bible is God's word. So all the nerdy, logical math people were like, oh, that was like food for my soul, that nerdy syllogism right there, right? But this is the first line of evidence. And for me, it's the easiest to understand, but more than that, it is by far the most powerful. I want my view of the Bible to match Jesus' view of the Bible, period. So if Jesus' view of the Bible is that it's historically accurate, true in all it affirms, has all the authority of God because it came from God as the source, then if you are a follower of Jesus, that should be your view too. For me, all the other four points are icing on the cake. This one right here is the meat and potatoes. If Jesus said it and you are his follower, then that should settle it for you. You should trust the Bible because he did. Now at this point, the inner lawyer might be saying, oh, wait a minute though, uh, aren't those words of Jesus in the Bible? So why, do you, why should I trust those are his words? I'm glad you asked. Let's keep going. To answer the objection that the Bible is not true, it's full of contradictions, the second reason you should trust the Bible is because of its consistent message. It's consistent message. One of the main ways we test whether something is true or false is with consistency, right? So when you're in high school and you're like, no, dad, I was home by 1159. It's like, honey, I looked out the window at 2 a.m. and your car wasn't there. There's some inconsistencies in your story. Remember that? Inconsistency, contradiction, statements that cannot both be true, that is a sure sign of error, right? That's not, that's not philosophical. We, we, we evaluate statements all day based on that, right? All sentences over five words are false. Yeah, see, it took you a second to realize, wait a minute, if it's true, it's false, because that has seven words and not five. We do this all the time. We're constantly evaluating whether or not the things that we believe are consistent. Do they make sense? That's, that's how we talk about it normally. Does this make sense or are there contradictions? It's one of the main ways that we test all statements about truth. Well, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is 66 different books written by 40 authors on three continents over 1,500 years in three languages, written by authors who are military generals and scholars and doctors and, and lawyers and fishermen and, and priests and shepherds and, and a whole bunch of others, all with their own unique life situations, their unique environments, experiences, history, upbringing, family lives. Moses is adopted. Like There's just all kinds of differences right, between these authors and yet Despite all of those critical differences, when you look at all 66 as a whole, there's a remarkable unity to the Bible. It covers hundreds of subjects, God, creation, good and evil, heaven and hell, death, life, Egypt, money, worship, clouds, uh, angels, love, marriage, souls, history, suffering. It covers all kinds of things with an incredible amount of consistency. That doesn't mean there aren't difficulties in the Bible that are, and some are harder, harder to reconcile than the others. But when we put them all together and we, we work on them, we, we come to realize that, 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 that for the most part, over an incredible amount of a percentage, that they can be reconciled pretty easily. In other words, there are no actual contradictions in the details or in the main ideas. And, that's, and here's the point. If it's consistent, then it's true. If there are no contradictions, you can trust it. Now, when we take all those 66 books and put them all together and say, what is the message of the whole Bible? The Bible gives us one consistent message, which is God glorified in the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is going to be on display. Everything is moving towards that. 
that God's greatness, his goodness, his power, his majesty, his grace is on display for all creation to stand in awe of. Everything is moving towards that, but is moving towards that through the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the unifying key to the Bible. He said it, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. He says that to religious leaders here. He says this next statement to his followers, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So all the scriptures concerning him. He's anticipated in the Old Testament. He arrives in the New Testament. He's in the Old Testament concealed. He's in the New Testament revealed. So if I asked all of us here, like, hey, let's, let's write about a 10-sentence uh, statement about uh, what happened here today. We'd be all over the map. We'd be contradicting each other constantly about what ha- took place here at church today. The Bible's written over a f- millennia and a half, 40 different authors, 66 books, and yet we can trust it because there's one consistent, unified, non-contradictory message and focus. It's Christ. And if you think about it and take a step back from that, that's, that's not only remarkable, that's miraculous. But also what it does is it shows, hey, wait a minute, there's, a, there's one single author to all of this because there's one single message to all of this, which is what Jesus said in point number one. That consistency shows why you should trust the Bible. Now, there might be others who say, you know what? There's no physical evidence for the Bible. You Christians, you don't even believe. You, you, you just take a leap of faith. You close your eyes. You're like, I just believe it because I believe it. Or I feel something. I'm like, oh, I got to follow that feeling. There's no physical evidence for the Bible. To those skeptics, I give the third reason for why you should trust the Bible, which is archaeology. Archaeology's discoveries. The discoveries of archaeology have given strong confirmation to the accuracy or reliability of the Bible. And so I just want to show you a couple of these smart guys who, who kind of summarize the data for us. Well, not, not him, but, you know, <laughs> next to him. Maybe stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. I don't use that word controverted. What does that mean? It means to deny the truth of something. There's been no archaeological find that has ever denied the truth of a statement in the Bible. Here's another smart guy. On the whole, however, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. So I want to show you a handful of these archaeological evidences, and these are going to help support the Old Testament. So here we go. We're going to go fast, but we're going to go through a lot. I'll tell you why at the end. These are called the Nuzi tablets. They date to around 1400 BC, which is is about the time of the conquest of Joshua. And these confirm many of the customs that are talked about in the book of Genesis. This is the Telemarna tablets. They refer to the conquest of Cana by Joshua. This is Joshua's altar. So if you've been reading through the Bible with us back at, uh, I think it was... It was early April that you read Joshua chapter eight and it talked about a ceremony where the, where the tribes were on either side and they were these mountains on either side and they did this ceremony. Well, the altar that is described in Joshua chapter eight, they found that. You can go to it and look at it today. Israel tell uh, Stella of King Maranepta. So that, that picture is kind of fuzzy because I took that picture with a smuggled in cell phone into the uh, Cairo Museum. They're like, no pictures in here. I'm like, no, I know where that thing is and I need a picture of it. So I was like, and so why did I do that? I knew it was there because I I was studying archaeology and it is the oldest non-biblical reference to the word Israel, to the Hebrew nation living in Canaan, which is where Israel is today. Here's another one. Gideon's stream. So on April 15th, if you're reading through the Bible, you read about the Gideon and his armies and all of that and, and how his army was too big. And so God's like, hey, we got to get rid of people here. So how they drink the water at that stream, that, that's how we're going to determine who's going to stay on your army, who's going to go home. Well, I took that picture. You can go there today. Exactly where the Bible says it is, is exactly where it is. Now I got down to drink the water, but then I was like, I don't know about this. And so I just pretended to drink the water. (laughs) But again, you could go there today. You go there right now. 
get on a plane and you could stand right there where it happened. Here's more. We're like, oh, King David, that's like King Arthur. He's not a real person. He's just a figment of, the, of a people's imagination until they found this, this piece of granite, this piece of rock that says uh, House of David. Now, why would you have a House of David if there wasn't uh, what? A David, <laughs> right? So it's this and another that confirm the, uh, that, that da- King David is a real historical figure. Moabite stone. You read 2 Kings, and if you were able to read the Moabite stone, guess what? You would see incredible confirmation. You would, you would see words like Israel, Yahweh, maybe even House of David. It's, it's on a crack, so some of the words are missing there. But it confirms the rebellion there in 2 Kings 3. Here's another one, the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Like, what is all that? Well, at the very top, in the second row, you see a guy, you see a guy bowing down. You can, can you kind of see that there? When you read the description of that, it mentions King Jehu, Israel's king, 2 Kings 9 through 10. You read that, you look at the black obelisk of Shalmaneser in the British Museum, and you go, oh my goodness, that, they match. And it's not like these big things, like the Exodus, you know, these massive, it's these little tiny events, these little random people. It's like, what? No, it's, it's, it's accurate. We continue. The Taylor prism, that's a picture that I took. Tells of the conquest of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And this part is talking about his interaction with a king in Israel named Hezekiah. Just happens to be the same Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 through 19 and that interaction that they had. Here's more. This is Hezekiah's seal. So when a king sent a document, there'd be wax and they'd put that seal to say, this is my stuff. Well, that's Hezekiah's seal. That has his name, King Hezekiah, on it. I know you can't read it, but that's what it says confirming that Hezekiah was a real person, not a figment of some religious community's imagination. Here's the Isaiah seal, prophet Isaiah interacting with Hezekiah. Guess what? In the same layer of, of, of for archeological layer, they find this seal with Isaiah's name on it in the middle. And at the very bottom, it's the first three letters of the word prophet. And because it's not all four letters, there's scholars back and forth, like, oh, it's not prophet, it's another word, whatever. If it is prophet, If that is that word, then this is archaeological confirmation that the prophet Isaiah not only existed, but also interacted with King Hezekiah, just like it happens to say in the Bible. We continue. Here's this letter that, oh, just happens to mention the house of God, confirming that there was a temple on the Temple Mount built by Solomon in Jerusalem, 600 B.C., Belshazzar. Remember him in, in Daniel? You know, that king that the writing on the wall where scholars, scholars again were like, oh, you know, he doesn't exist. There's no evidence for him. He's just a figment of religious community's imagination until they found the King Nabonidus cylinder. King Nabonidus was his dad and mentioned his son, Belshazzar. Whoops. Whoopsie. How about more confirmation? That's just, a sma- that's just like a small amount. And we just add another small amount. Legal codes like Exodus found that. The, the existence of peoples like the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites found evidence of that. You can go to biblical cities like Jericho and Dan and Megiddo and Shechem and Hatzor and Samaria, Shiloh, Gezer, Gebeah, Beth Shemesh, Beth Shan, Beersheba. You can go to all these places, those ones with the little stars on them. I've been to those places. I've seen them with my own eyes. The spring where Gideon chose his men, like, yeah, I just already showed you that. Existence of Solomon's temple showed you evidence for that. Here's Pharaoh Shishak from Egypt. Oh, his, his uh, invasion seen in 1 Kings 14. Yeah, that's, that, they found evidence of that. Existence of King Uzziah, Hezekiah's tunnel. Walked in that, or you could walk in that. You could, I mean, I've got pictures of my friends two weeks ago who are walking through the Hezekiah tunnel. It's like, there it is, exactly as the Bible says. And then there are these random guys that just like have one mention in the Bible. You know, Gamaria, Gedaliah, Jukal. Oh, if you go to those passages, you'll see their names. Oh, they found seals with their names on them. Gedaliah, you know, Jukal, all these people. Persian King Cyrus, it says in Ezra, sends the Jews back to go rebuild your temple. And then there's his, his, uh, his stuff, his writings have been found. The, the accounts of, of, his, of his actions have been found. And guess what? There's a section about him telling the Jews, hey, go back and rebuild your temple. Like, 
we are, uh, if you want to know more about this, I recommend this book through the British Museum with the Bible. You don't have to go to the British Museum and use this book. Um, if you did, I've done that. It's unbelievable. The stuff that it's explaining, you're looking at, you're like, this is, un- this is unreal. But even if you didn't do that, it's full of colored pictures. It's full of explanations to show you the Bible you hold in your hand is historically reliable and historically accurate. So one smart guy put it this way. There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial history of the Old Testament. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, every city in the book of Acts has been identified and has been, many have been excavated. Not long ago, scholars, again, scholars are questioning the existence of Pontius Pilate. This, the early church needed a bad guy because Jesus died. And so they got to create this bad guy, Roman Empire. Christians didn't like Rome, blah, blah, blah. And so they create Pontius Pilate. There's no evidence that he ever existed. And then in 1961, Italian archaeologists were excavating an ancient Roman amphitheater. And lo and behold, they discovered this rock. And on this rock, it says the words Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Whoopsie, right? (laughs) Got to reorient our theories to match the Bible again. Here are a couple more examples. Gallio is just some random guy mentioned in Acts 18. Oh, but they found a a monument with his name on it. First, the date to the first century, exactly where Paul said he was. Here's Erastus. He was an official in Corinth where Paul wrote the book of Romans from. And lo and behold, in, 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 in Corinth, they find this monument that has his name on it, Erastus. Man mentioned in, in Romans 16. So a beloved professor of mine used to say, every time an archaeologist turns his spade, another critic says, oops. Now you know why. Because the Bible is reliable history. And there are dozens of more of these, like for the New Testament. There's so much of this. There's even huge people that are mentioned, like, you know, Paul and Peter and, 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 and Augustus Caesar and Tiberius. They're all mentioned. But even smaller people, King, King Herod the Great, King Herod Agrippa, Licinius of Abilene, they found him. Caiaphas the high priest. I've, I've looked at his bone box. I've seen it with my own eyes. Cities like Caesarea Maritima, Capernaum. You can stand in the city of Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base in Galilee. You can go to Peter's house. You can stand in the, uh, in the synagogue where Jesus healed people and preached in Capernaum. You can do that. Philippi, dozens of more. James, Jesus' brother, evidence of him has been found. Proconsul Sergius Paulus. Again, random Sergius Paulus. Who's him? Well, archaeologists find evidence for him. Jacob's well. Pula Bethesda. Peter's house, synagogue, pool of Siloam, Lazarus' tomb, garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' tomb. You can go to all these places and look at them with your own eyes because this book is not fantasy. It is history. That is why. Now, to those who say, you know, now, again, I just want you to know, this is just a small fraction. So in preaching and speaking, people are like, you never do what I just did. Because you will lose people fast. It's just too much information. But I did it on purpose. I want you to feel the weight of a mountain of evidence. That this book that you have right here is the word of God and can be trusted. Archaeology confirms it over and over and over again. Now, there might be someone saying, you know, that's great, but the Bible's been corrupted. What is in there now is not what was originally written. All of that has been lost. To that person, I give the fourth reason why you should trust the Bible, which is manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. A manuscript is a testimony of the Bible. It is a copy of the Bible that can range from a scrap of paper to the entire Bible. All of those are called manuscripts. No matter how much, how little or how much, that's called a manuscript. So when it comes to the Old Testament, we have fewer manuscripts than the New Testament, but the copies we do have are beyond excellent for reconstructing what the original authors wrote. So I want to tell you the story briefly of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written between 1445 and 430 BC. Now, fast forward to 1946. So before 1946, our earliest complete Old Testament manuscripts date from 900 AD. Okay. So that's a huge time gap. We're talking like 2000 year time gap between our earliest copies of the Old Testament and when those were written by the original authors. And we had 730 Christian scholars, Jewish scholars. They had 730 of those manuscripts. 
And those 730 were then used to create the Bibles that are pre-1890. I know there's a lot of numbers and all that, but forgive me. Now, few, now, so you're looking at like, why did few survive? Well, these pieces of paper decay over time. There have been over 40 wars in the city of Jerusalem in its history. So there's been destruction and chaos and fires and burning and all of that stuff for for history. So, So a lot of that stuff has been lost. And then you've got, you know, the Jews, when they would finish, when they would like, like my Bible right here is like folding and it's, you know, all of this stuff. And so when, 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 when a, a scriptural manuscript, when it, when it would deteriorate, they would just copy it and get rid of it so that they didn't just store them somewhere most of the time. And so in the many of hundreds of these manuscripts from this period of 900, there's amazing, incredible confirmation. The variant readings where, where one manuscript disagrees with another is very small. And so then what happens is that the Jews translated those, the, the, the Hebrew into Greek in 200, around 200 AD and when, BC. And when those are compared with our 900 AD manuscripts, again, incredible confirmation. Why is that? Because the Jews took this very seriously. Here's a father speaking to a son who wanted to be a scribe. And he said this, my son, be careful because your work as a scribe copying the Bible is the work of heaven. Should you omit even one letter the whole world would be destroyed. Not one paragraph, not one line, not one word, one letter. This is how important it was. When you study how important it was, it would blow you away how much, they, how much care and precision they took with this. So, 1947, Dead Sea Scrolls are found. The city of Qumran. And um, 600 manuscripts of the Old Testament there. And what happened was it took our earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament from 900 AD and moved them up a thousand years. A thousand years closer to the original writings. And what did they find when they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to the 900 AD manuscripts? Again, incredible, incredible confirmation that even the 900 AD manuscripts were meticulously copied so that when they were compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was incredible confirmation. Again, I've seen the Isaiah scroll with my own eyes. And you see it right there in front of your eyes. Like you could take a Hebrew Bible and you could look at Isaiah and you could see the confirmation from what we have today with what was written three, what is that, 2,000 years ago? And for Mormons, they're like, oh, the Old Testament's been corrupted. Notice that some of our manuscripts predate Jesus' birth. So we have manuscripts that predate Jesus, but they say, oh, you know, the Bible was corrupted by by people after the death of the apostles. No, we have manuscripts that predate the apostles of the Old Testament. And they are exactly what we have today. Exactly. Translation, God has preserved his word. So... Another smart guy, the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls is tremendous. They pushed the history of the Old Testament back a thousand years. They helped to establish the accuracy of the Old Testament texts. Now, what about the New Testament? This, is a, this is, might be a little complicated, but again, I told you it's on YouTube. It's on our Facebook and all that. So what I want you to see is these are ancient documents, ancient books. And I want you to see there's the name. There's when it was written. There's the date of our earliest copy the time gap and how many copies we have, okay? So here's a few. Plato's Republic, for instance, written 400 BC, earliest copy 900 AD, 1300 year difference. How many copies of Plato's Republic do scholars have? Seven. Okay, and so you can follow that all the way down, okay? Now, it is, you can see the time gap. That's what I want you to focus on here. The number copies and the time gap. Incredible amount of time gap between when it was written and our earliest copies. So the question then becomes, um, here is the, the best attested ancient document that we have other than the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. Okay. Written 850 BC, earliest copy 900 AD. Anybody read that? High school, college, some of it. So there are more existing copies of Homer's Iliad manuscripts than any other ancient book except the Bible, about 2,200, okay? And so we've got 2,200 manuscripts, which are just parts of the whole thing that they put together to reconstruct what the original authors wrote. Well, what about the Bible? What about the New Testament? 
written between 50 AD and 95 AD, earliest copies, fragment 114 AD. Whole book, 200 AD. Whole New Testament, 325 AD. There's the math for the time gap there. Now, how many, that's very small compared to the others. You see that, right? It's not even close. Now, how many, how many Greek manuscripts in the New Testament do we have? 5,735. And that's as of 2003. I talked to a scholar buddy of mine recently. He said, no, it's way over 6,000 now. And what do we, what do we find when we, when, we, when we put all that together. So at this point, you might, be, you might think like I did in high school. Well, the reason we have all these copies is because it was like the telephone game and you had Paul write the letter to the book of Romans and then somebody copied that and then someone copied the copy and copied the copy and copied the copy and copied the copy. And that, then we got the book of Romans and there's no way for you to know now like what was original because there's been so many changes over time. That's what I thought as a high school student. Even though I was going to church all the time, I, I was like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, you can't really trust that stuff. Yeah, whatever. And then I learned how the New Testament actually became the New Testament. Here's what happened. So Paul writes a letter to a church. So there's a few of them on the screen there, Rome and Corinth and all of that. So he writes a letter to that church. And then what happens is that church gets the letter and goes, wait a minute, there's something special about this book. We need to copy it. So there wasn't one copy and one copy and one copy and one copy. There were multiple people all copying that book. Okay, so that's what those little ones are around the big one. But then those people didn't stay there. I mean, all of us, many of us are from other parts of the country who came here. Well, the same thing was then. They would move for work or they just, we got to go somewhere. And they'd take their little copy of First Thessalonians, for instance, with them. And they'd go to Rome. And then they'd meet Christians in Rome. And they go, well, we have got this letter from Paul. Well, I've got this letter from Paul. Or someone from Philippi would show up and they've got a letter. And they're like, wait, oh, I've got, I've got one too. And so what did they do? They copied those. And over the early first couple hundred years, this is how the, the New Testament spread around the Roman Empire. So that eventually what happens is that as, as time goes by, then they start putting them together into books and going, this, this is the authoritative from God New Testament written by apostles and prophets. Okay, so that's, that's crude, simplistic understanding, but that's what happened. So I just want you to know full disclosure that most of those 57, 35 uh, manuscripts are, are, are from after 1000 AD. So they're, so they're from after 1000, that's the 900 years after the, the end of the New Testament. However, we have 124 manuscripts that date to within 300 years of the end of the New Testament. So 400 AD and earlier. And when you take just those, okay, 400 back to the writing, you can, we can, scholars can reproduce the New Testament multiple times just with those. And then when you move it to 250 AD, you just move it there, scholars can reproduce with those manuscripts 49% of the New Testament. And as you can see in this red box, there's, a, there's not a huge time gap when it comes to the New Testament, right? Within 300 years of being written, no other ancient document has one manuscript within 300 years of being written. The New Testament has 100, has 124. Now, I just want you to see on this, this is just some of the manuscripts that we have. Now this isn't, this is, like I said, over 6,000, this is just seven. But I want you to notice what we have just from these seven. I can't go through every detail, but just look at that for a second. Part of Romans, part of First Thess, all of Hebrews, all of First and Second Corinthians, all of Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, and Colossians within 150 years of it being written. Half of Revelation, much of John, much of Matthew, all of Jude, all of First and Second Peter, 144 pages of Luke and John together. Like this is a massive part of the New Testament that we have pre 250 pre-250 years after the New Testament. Now, here's how... Uh, so I just want you to see. So here's a picture of the oldest, the, 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 the manuscript that is closest to the time of writing. So this is a part of John 18. This is the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And it's right there. So if you had a Greek text, you could take your Greek text and you could compare it to those lines. You'd be like, oh my goodness, there it is. It's exactly what, what our Bibles say is exactly on that piece of paper. 
Now here's the fascinating part of this. You can see the date. So John writes about 85 AD. And this is dated to 114 AD. Now that's 29 years, right? 29 years. So that's very close, right? But here's another part. John probably wrote in Ephesus. This was found in Egypt. 1,500 miles away, it traveled from Ephesus in Turkey down to, uh, to, 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 to Egypt in that 29-year span. This is what I mean. These Christians were writing, copying, and moving. And that is how the New Testament spread around the Roman Empire. This is the, early, the oldest copy of the entire Bible, 325 A.D., you can see, I saw this, my wife and I, with our own lies in the, uh, the, the British Library in London. You can see it. And you can take, you can take a Hebrew text or a Greek text and you can look at it and you go like, oh, it's exactly the same as mine. No way. Now, we have a lot more than just, so here's a smart guy. Here's how a smart guy, smart guys summarize things helpful in a helpful way. And here's one of them. So there are, in fact, this guy is like the top New Testament scholar in the world on this subject. And he says this, there is, in fact, three times as many manuscripts in the New Testament within 200 years of it being written as there are of the average classical author's work within 2,000 years of it being written. Now, we have a lot more than just Greek New Testament manuscripts, too. Because Christians loved the Bible. They loved God's word. And so they put it on pottery. And we have some of that. Ancient walls, pillars, coins, monuments. There, we have 2,000 books called lectionaries. Which were orders of services for the early Christians. Over 2,000 of those quoting the Bible. Books used. Um, the, the early church fathers. You could just take five early church fathers. They quote the New Testament 36,000 times in their writings. You can reconstruct the entire New Testament from their writings if you had no Greek manuscripts. Add to that, they found 20,000 manuscripts, which are translations of the New Testament. 20,000. Do you hear that word? Again, preaching 101 says, don't do what I just did. However, I want you to feel the weight. There is no reason you should ever, ever, ever not trust what you see here in this book as being the exact words that were written by the authors who said to write them. You should never doubt that. There is no evidence for doubting that at all. So if, when scholars put all that stuff together, is there any part of the New Testament that they're still not quite sure what was originally written by the original author? And the answer is yes. How much of the New Testament are they still not sure these super smart guys one one thousandth of one percent, which is the equivalent of about one page to three quarters of a page. And here's the thing. The people who have Bible, like if you were to open your Bible right now to the end of Mark, it would show you brackets. Not sure if this was original. If you go to, to the end of John 7, there are brackets around the woman caught in adultery. Not sure if this was original. So nobody's hiding this at all. They put it right there and they're like, we're not sure, but we're putting it in there anyway, because it might be original. We just don't know. There's no hiding it. There's no like, oh, there's a secret cabal who are hiding the true, the true teachings of the Bible, the true teaching of Jesus. Like, that's ridiculous. It's not true. And with all the charts and all of that, I just want you to say, I just want you to feel the weight of that. Like, the Bible you have in your lap is exactly what was written. More smart guys, frankly, when skeptics try to make the claim that we simply have no clue what the original New Testament text said, one has to wonder what drives their dogmatic skepticism because it certainly isn't the what? Evidence. There's simply no room for uncertainty about what the New Testament originally taught. So if you've been told by somebody, you know, by many great and precious promises have been lost from the scriptures and that there needed to be somebody to come along to fill in those things, to give us back those things. You are either being told that out of ignorance or deception. Almost nothing at all and surely nothing significant has been lost from the Bible. Now, we didn't really need any of that because look at what Jesus said. All we have to do is say, I believe what Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe what he taught. What did he teach about this? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not what? They're not going to pass away. And since Jesus is God, this refers to the whole Bible. Because the Bible is God's word. Easier for the universe to disappear 
than for Jesus' words to disappear. So you think about it again, a person is painted into a corner, right? If she thinks the Bible has been corrupted and many truths have been lost, that is not only not supported by the evidence, but it would also make Jesus a false teacher because this is what he said. This is a prediction. This is something to evaluate him on whether or not he is a true prophet. And what you, what you find when you look at the evidence is exactly what Jesus said. Not one word has passed away. Manuscript evidence confirms beyond any reasonable doubt that you should trust the Bible. To anybody with a partially open mind. The fifth and final reason you should trust the Bible is because of prophecies fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled. God doesn't just say, listen to me because I said so. He does that. He's God. He's the king. He's in charge. But he also does this for people. Like in the book of Isaiah, he will say, listen to me because I can tell you the future. I can write history in advance so that when it happens, you look at it and go, I, that, that, this has to be supernatural. Notice uh, Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord. This is, this is God speaking to his people saying, you should listen to me. You shouldn't listen to those idols. You shouldn't listen to those other people. You should listen to my word because I will confirm it for you when I say something that's going to happen and then it happens. And at the end of Isaiah 44, you know, he names King Cyrus by name 150 years before Cyrus shows up and helps the Jews. Names him by name. The Jewish rabbis took the prophecy of Isaiah to King Cyrus and said, God told us you were coming. And that is why Cyrus was so helpful to the Jews, sending them back, giving them the money to rebuild their temple because they saw, he saw Isaiah and they were like, okay, this, 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 is, this is a supernatural book. Well, God says that you should do this. You should trust me. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Talk to your idols. Talk to your prophets. Have them do that. Have them just tell the future. Call up Miss Cleo and just say, tell me the future. That's what he's saying. Ancient Miss Cleo, tell me the future. And he's like, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you're my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Is there a God that can do this? There is no rock. I know not any, and he's omniscient. So God gives us a test for everyone who claims to be a prophet. And he does it in, in Deuteronomy 18. And the cool thing about this test is that it is not complicated at all. It is super easy. It is, it's not elaborate. It's not mystical. It's not supernatural. You don't have to pray about, is this a true prophet, God? I don't, I don't know. It's like, make me feel like, like, make my liver quiver. Help me understand this, right? You don't need that at all. This is how you know someone is hearing from God and someone who is not hearing from God. Very simple. And it's very simple because God loves us. He doesn't want this to be complicated. He wants us to clearly and easily spot which is his word and which is not his word. And here it is, Deuteronomy 18, 21. If you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? How do I know that God is not speaking to that person? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has what? Not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You don't have to worry because that's what we would do. We'd see a prophet or a prophetess and we'd be like, oh, they call themselves prophet. Or maybe I should listen to them. God, what should I do? And we'd, we'd wait for some kind of sign or some kind of nonsense like that. No, he says very clearly, if they get one thing wrong, it's not me because I'm God and I don't get anything wrong. Right? I don't get anything wrong. Now, are there examples of fulfilled prophecy? You bet there are. I have no time to show this to you. No time to go through this. No time at all. You can go on YouTube and pause and, and copy all this. Just email me. If you want this, email me. I will email you this whole thing. You can have it. But here are just eight examples, and there are dozens of these kinds of things in the Bible. Specific prophecies given hundreds and thousands of years before they happen, and then fulfilled exactly as God says they would be. Exactly. So when taken together, writing about specific events, hundreds of years, even thousands of years before they happen, it gives irrefutable support to the idea that the Bible is true and that you should trust it. You absolutely should trust the Bible. If you want to go deeper on this, you're like, ah, you know, that was a little too fast. I highly recommend this book, From God to Us, Norm Geisler, William Nix, How We Got the Bible. Incredibly helpful. 
incredibly helpful for all of these questions. Now, in conclusion, there's one last test of reliability of the Bible that I think is very powerful and helpful. I don't find it as strong as these because it's more subjective than objective, but it's how influential the Bible has been. This book in your lap is the number one bestseller in history. Even though Caesars and kings and popes and other religions and atheists have tried to destroy it, it is the most popular book in history. It is the first book on the printing press. It's been translated into over 2,000 languages. No book is even close to that. The Bible's changed history. Hospitals, schools, relief organizations. It's, it's impacted music, language, art, politics. There's nothing in the West, at least, that has not been untouched by the Bible's influence. And finally, we could put people on the microphones all day and night and who would talk about how God has used this book to change their lives. The effect of the Bible on those who trust it and the effect of the Bible through those who trust it give a powerful testimony for why you should trust it. So if anyone questions the reliability of the Bible, if that inner skeptic starts to throw ideas at you, arguments at you as to why you can't, you should doubt the Bible, you should doubt Christianity, you should just put it at arm's length and like, yeah, I believe it, but I don't follow it because what, it's like, it's too radical or it's just too much Jesus freakish stuff. Just remember, Jesus can't. All who call themselves followers of Jesus should have a high view of the Bible because he did. On top of that, there's a non-contradictory, consistent message in all 66 books. Archaeology gives dozens and dozens of lines of evidence. So does the manuscript evidence. So does predictive prophecy. All of it, all of it pushing you and, and, and causing, if you even have a slightly open mind, to say, I really should consider this book special. It's the word of God and I should trust it and I should live my life according. I should turn from my sins and I should give my life to Christ because this is true. And it says that he died for my sins and he rose from the dead and so I should give my life to him. I should follow him because this is all true. I've, I've, I've sinned against God and he offers forgiveness. That's the message of the, this book. That, that's what this book is driving you towards. If you're not a Christian, it is to give your life to Christ now. Not based on some like, oh, like I got to feel it. I, you know, I got to have some kind of supernatural experience or whatever. No, this book is true. Even though I know it's only God that can open your eyes to that. So if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. Please take them. There's those blue ones back there. Take it. It's yours. Read it. I'd say start in the book of Mark. If you want a Bible reading plan, we've got them out in the lobby. You can read that out there. You can start on today and just read through the Bible. If they, oh, that's too much. We'll just start with the New Testament and read through the New Testament this year. You know? Um, and to all of us, if you think about it, what we've just said, this is one special book in, in your hands, right? This is one incredibly, I mean, it says Holy Bible on the front, but now you know why it's holy. It's special. It's different. Because it's the word of God. And if that's true, then we should know this book. We should be experts in this book. This book should be more important. The intake of this book should be more important than anything else. We should read it and study it and memorize it and live according to it. Because this is the word of God. This book should not be neglected. Not after everything we've seen today. Not at all. This is the word of God. So let's be people of the book. All right? Amen. Let's pray.